Hey everybody, Jerry here. Before we get to our episode today featuring the legendary wing lamb of Wahoo's Fish Taco, I want to feature an, an Asian American business also based in Orange County, California, and that business is House of M Beauty. House of M Beauty is the first skincare brand to feature saffron packed with antioxidants in clean formulas. They are a vegan and cruelty-free brand. Um, got to know Anne last year when we were doing the Dear Asian Americans Instagram series. She's an amazing entrepreneur, amazing, kind human being, and somebody who is so involved uh, with the Vietnamese and Asian American community here in Southern California. We want to support her because she supports us. So check her out at houseofmbeauty.com on Instagram and on Facebook at House of M Beauty. Thanks again for listening. And here now is my conversation with Wing. Welcome to Dear Asian Americans. I am your host, Jerry. This guest that we have on is somebody that I saw speak a year ago at a, a USC event uh, down in Orange County. Um, I had known in the back of my mind that he and his brothers were the amazing entrepreneurs behind Wahoo's Fish Tacos, but I had actually never put the two in together. And, and so he spoke on stage and talked about his journey. And, and I thought that speech was interesting um, because it wasn't to a particular Asian American audience. If you know a little bit about the donor base at USC or anything about Newport Beach, Wing, Wing and I were probably one of a handful of uh, Asian American folks in the entire building. So, you know, it was, I, I felt emboldened to introduce myself after the conversation. And I said, Hey, I'm working on this thing and, you know, I would love for you to come on. And so we are here almost to the day for one year uh, since we, we had that conversation. If you've been in Southern California or a number of different places, Las Vegas, college campuses all over. Um, you may have had the amazing fish tacos from Wahoo's, had the, the beachy, surfy vibe, um, and never really thought that there's three Asian American dudes, three Chinese Brazilian American dudes who were behind the concept and are still at the helm today. So Wink, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, in introduce yourself uh, in your own words. Well, <clears throat> some people say that I'm the coolest CEO on the planet. I tell them, nah, I'm just another taco maker. And uh, I'm lucky that my brothers, Mingo and Ed, uh, we were all behind this crazy idea some 32 years ago. And it turned out to be okay. I mean, against all odds, against everyone's advice that said, what are you guys doing? Do you realize you're not Mexican? That was the first thing they said. I goes, we realize we're not Mexican. But we're Brazilian, and we think we can do this. So it's been a really fun. We've had a lot of roller coaster rides along the way, but it's now fun to be different. Agreed. Uh, before we talk about the tacos, um, so Chinese slash Brazilian slash American, um, share us a little bit about your family's journey uh, from Asia via South America and then eventually to uh, Orange County. Well, let's start. The, the, my dad, after he got married, when my mom was pregnant, he already left because it was the first wave of people leaving China. If you didn't leave right after World War II, you're going to be stuck for the next 40 or 50 years. So my dad and all his friends immediately took off. So he ended up running a food cart in Hong Kong. From there, he got met a couple of friends, got an opportunity to go to Japan, where he was running five Chinese restaurants in Japan and was offered to be a ownership of the restaurants if he married one of the owner's daughters. <laughs> My dad politely declined since he was still married. Uh, but 
opportunity came for him to end up in Brazil, where he was one of the first uh, Chinese restaurants in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where 10 years later, my mom figured out that she was never going to see my dad again unless she left the country. So my mom followed him, the footsteps to Hong Kong, ended up on a, I call it about a 30 plus day boat ride to South America, enjoyed my dad in, in Sao Paulo. So at that time, my brother, who was about 10 years old, had never seen his dad. Uh, so that's how they reunited. And obviously, that's where there's a 10-year gap between my oldest brother and the rest of us. And then they decided that by that time, Sao Paulo was a little bit crowded with the Chinatown. So they moved to a small, literally, if Sao Paulo is on one end of the state, we ended up on the other end of the state. <laughs> Literally, it was crazy. But we were the only Chinese family for almost the first maybe 10 or 11 years of my life. So I always knew there were other Asian kids, but they're all Japanese descendant. So we hung out, and, and then another Chinese uh, family moved in from Taiwan and in the neighborhood. And one of the things that the kid, uh, I can't remember his name right now, he played baseball. So in order to help him assimilate to what we were doing, we decided to go out and, and play baseball as well. So I ended up becoming, I didn't realize our team was one of the best Little League teams of all of Brazil. So we went on to win two national championships Little League before I was 14 years old and we moved to the United States. So it's been a long journey. And luckily, again, my dad left early, came to America in the late 60s opened a beautiful Chinese restaurant on Balbo Island, the Shanghai Pine Garden. And that's where, talk about the ultimate luck, is uh, two things, right? When we're in Brazil, you have a monopoly when you're the only Chinese restaurant in town. So you don't have any competition. And then the other thing that we finally kind of accidentally fell into was called celebrity marketing. Because my dad's restaurant was relatively empty in Newport Beach. And this wonderful customer came in named John Wing, the old Western actor. And John Wayne's appearance in my dad's restaurant literally took it from about a 20% occupancy to 150% occupancy overnight. That allowed the business to flourish. And my dad needed some free labor, we call it. So the rest of us came in 1975, and the rest is history. That's awesome. I mean, we, we talk about influencer marketing and, and celebrity endorsements and all that stuff. Now, I can't imagine how, how different... South Orange County and, and Balboa Island was back, you know, now almost 50 years ago, um, which is wild to think about. You have your restaurant in your genes. You, yep. Your dad has, has now been in the restaurant business three or four countries successfully. Yep. Um, and you said you had an age gap between your brothers. Tell me about that journey. You know, wh was there any sort of pressure to go into the restaurant business or not? because of his experience? And, and how did you and your brothers talk about that as you guys were figuring out what you wanted to do? It, it's, as it turns out, we were all here just before high school. So we basically got thrown in off, literally right into high school, you know, as we call it. Uh, it was a very uh, abrupt, you know, we went from a tropical country to a winter-like country in America. We went from playing baseball to basically learning how, you know, like, like to surf, right? Because to me, baseball here was a lot different because, again, it's all language related, right? So we kind of thought, what would be something that would be easier to do? And, you know, obviously we acclimated to different things. But the one thing in the Asian culture, and it's changed a lot since, 
but there's still a little bit of, a, I call it a pride factor. If you could be a doctor, an attorney, or an engineer, in a perfect world, that would be an ideal son in an Asian family. Well, you and I are doing about way, way off the radar. <laughs> so we went to college to do that. So the difference was my oldest brother became a very, very successful attorney. My second brother, and the two of them are, were never in the business. Uh, my second brother became a doctor. So then I was started slated to be an engineer because that was the next. <laughs> and it's really true. Except for I almost literally got kicked out of school because my grades weren't as good as they should have been. Because the one thing that, again, Asian kids in the 80s did not do was join a fraternity. So again, today, totally different. But back then on a college campus of San Diego State with over 2,000 members of the Greek system, I was literally one of the first two Asian kids in the entire system. So for our whole lives, when as kids, I never knew the difference because we were always the only family in Brazil, the only family in Newport Beach. So, you know, it, there were more, but there weren't, it wasn't like you could go next door and find another Asian kid. It was far and few in between. So wherever we were, we're always the only ones. So I never knew the difference. I always said, get out with it. I'm just like everybody else. My skin color is a little different, right? But there's not a lot you can do about it. Right. So you either, you know, learn to adapt or you got to go, right? I figured out, let's adapt. So when people said you can't join the Greek system, I said, I don't know what that means, but I'm going to try it anyway. I ended up joining one of the top fraternities. I was a Lambda guy at San Diego State, had a great time. And through it, I learned a lot about the social part of life. It's not all about the grades. It's about, you know, your social ability to interact with other people. And that really helped me become, I call it the person I am today, just being able to interact with people, right? And not just be so caught up in your own little circle of life. But along the ways, there's a lot of social interaction that takes place, which takes place over your curriculum at school, which didn't help my grades at all. <laughs> but, you know, so there wasn't the pressure so much to be in the restaurant business. My parents wanted none of us to be in the restaurant business. So all of us ended up getting college degrees. And of all places, I could have gotten my first job out of college. I kind of, my parents are happy. I got a job at Rockwell International on the space shuttle program. So it was kind of not quite an engineer. But it was still in that aerospace engineering world. So that made him happy. And then as my kid brother was getting ready to get out of school, I told him, that, you know what, corporate America is fun, but I'm not sure it's that much fun for us. Because remember, this is still the mid-80s where there were still not a lot of Asians in the business force. So I said, maybe there's something else we can do. And Ed was like, hey, we have this need because all his friends were always talking about, what do we do after surfing? And they said, we need a place to hang out. So that's kind of how the story really began. And I'm like, hey, I'm not really having that much fun. I can tell you, I got a college degree, but this isn't that much fun. And you're getting ready to graduate. So maybe we should look at taking not a serious restaurant, but something more casual. So we had no idea that we we're kind of creating this new little space, which is kind of like quick service. Not fast food, but not full set down. Somewhere where you can get really good food, but at a reasonable price, at a pretty good speed of service. And that's how Wapos was started. I think listening to your story, you, you hear themes. I'm hearing themes of there were so many new beginnings, right? Whether it was yeah. country to country or career to career or, you know, new environments, right? It's not easy yeah. to move to 
multiple continents as a child and having to relearn a language, whether it be Portuguese or English. And I, I think you are not, I can't imagine some of the treatment or, you know, um, the unfamiliarity with other um, that, that kids, especially now is a very relevant topic as we're going through what we're going through now. Mm-hmm. But, but I think those things actually, if I'm hearing it right, those helped you be more bold because what is the benefit of staying in status quo if there wasn't as much opportunity, right? Like you could go down the corporate path, but if you're going to be the only Asian kid in a room full of, you know, tall white dudes, is that my best way to success? And I am, you know, it's, and, and you saying that that was, I don't know, 40 years ago, yeah. um, a lot of us and even younger folks than me are still being told by society, community, <laughs> family, that that is still the way to go. And, and, and for some, it might be, right? Uh, yeah. For some, it might be. And for some, it actually is, whether it's doctor, lawyer, or you know, some other profession. But I think you are one of the extremely rare and amazing folks from your generation who early on said, I'm going to do something different. And I think it, you were almost destined to do that because of the experience of your family on how you ended up where you did, right? If your parents had a different trajectory of coming to the States, whether they were you know, a different job or a different you know, circumstance, they may have, I don't know, maybe pulled you aside a little bit firmly or more whatever and said, what are you doing surfing and what are you doing, you know, do, doing other stuff? So I, I think contextually very important because it wasn't, one, they don't know that three Chinese Brazilian American dudes are behind a fish taco brand that sponsors, you know, monster truck races and snowboarding races and then band stuff and, you know, that South OC very, you know, exports culture. And I think it's perfect because why the hell not, I think is the reason, right? If you yeah. don't think you were meant to go down the prescribed path, why not try something different? Um, so how did you, why fish tacos? How fish tacos? Well, because again, you got to do something different, right? And in the business school, they teach you about two things, right? And remember, I remember the John Wayne theory, I call it the marketing. So I figured you got to have one of those. And today, I mean, there's no better example than all the alcohol brands. All the ones that have sold for billions of dollars, right. there's a celebrity component to it, right? right? So that's no mystery. So, but more important, you have to have a unique offer, a monopoly. So the only thing that all the surfers talked about in Orange County in the 80s was how come nobody sells fish tacos? You would find it on certain menus and specials, but it was always like the leftover, the trimmings off the fish, things that they couldn't sell on that regular plate. They said, screw, screw it, let's just deep fry it, put it in a tortilla and call it a fish taco. And basically, that's how it was started in Mexico as well, was the, all the bycatches, the accidentals. So if a shark got caught in the net, they're like, we can't sell shark to anybody, let's just sell it as a you know taco. So that's what people did, right? So it was an accidental thing for them. And more important in America as well, they said, well, let's, everybody loves it, let's try to do this thing. So that's what we did. We went out. And, you know, not only are we going to try to do this fish taco thing, let's do it with a twist, right? Because we are not really Mexican. So, okay, well, let's just go literally, if we're going to go, let's go off the deep end, right? So that's why you've got the white rice, the black beans, which is the Brazilian influence. Let's not deep fry it, let's grill it. And let's find amazing fishes, not find the cheap fishes, right? So we started back in the day with tuna, swordfish, yellowtails, avocados, you name it, all the high-end fishes. And says, why shouldn't we settle for inferior quality fish? Let's try with the best, the premiums. 
We had no idea about food costs, which is, we learned it, you know. But again, because we were the laborers, we could afford to take whole fishes and fillet into sizes. So that's what we did early on. And we made it healthy because something told me it was more instinct than anything else. Because in the 80s, it was almost a joke if you had a personal trainer. It's like, Mm -hmm. dude, are you kidding me? You're paying somebody $100 to tell you how to lift weights. The funny part is you fast forward, about 10 years ago, you were crazy if you didn't have a Pilates instructor, a spin instructor, a yoga instructor, right. a pure bar. It's interesting how the changes, you can't have one for everything. Now you got to have one for everything that you do in your life. So you start thinking about it. And so we were kind of ahead of it. So before it was mandated that you need to have calories and all mm. the nutritional information on your menu. If you can find one of our original menus from 30 some years ago, we had the calorie, the, the whole breakdown. Because people, I thought, one day they're going to want to learn this. And eventually, five years in, we took it off because nobody cared about it. And then all of a sudden, it becomes mandating, right? right? So there's a lot of things that we did that we stuck to it. So i.e., you know, it's a balanced meal. We all did all the things it was before it was chic to grill your fish. There are very few places around town that grilled it. So we were one of the first. So we were one of the first to always do a lot of things from a food perspective. But again, it's about because that's the way we love to eat. The other thing that came about is, it was again more accidental, uh, opportunistic as we call it. Nobody was interested in action sports. And we kind of fell into it because all of our neighbors happened to be all the action brands in America. So the Billabongs, the Quicksilvers, the Gotchas, the Susies of the world, they were our neighbors. So we just kind of said, hey, let's help support our customers. And our customers were doing surf contests, skate contests, snowboarding, and all the other sports. So we kind of fell into it. It was all like local stuff. And then eventually the locals became the X Games, the US Opens, the new tours. So we kind of grew with it. But it wasn't like this, let's set out to do this because one day, 30 years from now, surfing and skateboarding are going to be in the Olympics. We never thought, ah, you've got to be out of your mind. If this is something cool, that's why we're going to do it because it's an aspirational sport. It's not something that everybody's like, oh, my God, I can't wait for my kid to be a professional surfer. You know, it's more of an aspiration. I hope he surfs well enough to maybe do it. But whereas everybody says, oh, I want my kid to play basketball, football, or baseball, whatever, right? So it was just kind of one of those. So we just kind of grew. And basically, I would joke about we kind of rode this wave that just seemed to keep going. Talk to me about you and your brothers and if you guys talked about it then or if you guys talk about it now looking back as three Asian American kids in a predominantly uh, not diverse neighborhood in South OC 30, 40 years ago, not diverse industry, which the restaurants outside of owning a ethnic restaurant probably was not very diverse. And then sponsoring and being in a community like Action Sports, which I can damn sure say was not diverse at all. It's not very diverse today <laughs> still, right? You know, did you did you guys feel it? Was it you know something you guys talked about? You know, is it because I, I think today we're, we're more aware of our surround. There's more of us doing awesome things, but we're still more aware. So I'm curious to see if you, you and your brothers felt it back then, talked about it, and and how did that evolve till today? Well, the funny part is, since we were kids, we always had what we call the thick skin. So nobody ever came home saying, "Oh my God, somebody today called me a name." Because we just kind of said, really, is that all you got on me kind of a thing? Because if that's all you got, you got nothing. 
right? Because I'm going to beat you in sports. I'm going to beat you in the classroom. And all you got to do is call me names. <laughs> That's nothing. My skin, it just rolls off my shoulder, right? So we never really kind of took any slur by any ethnicity as personal. Because we always say, if that's all you got, you got nothing, right? So we always never, never really worried about it. We knew it existed, but we just kind of say, hey, we're just going to beat you in your own game. That's what we always did. So in business, which is kind of funny, is as we align with action sports first, which then since has turned into football, baseball, and all the other sports, it's very interesting. There's only one breed of Asians in the world that are cool, right? It's the Hawaiians. If you are anywhere in the world and you say you're Hawaiian, it doesn't matter if you're actually Filipino, Korean, Vietnamese, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the moment you start with, I'm Hawaiian, you're cool. And it doesn't matter if you were born or raised there. At some point or another, your <laughs> uncle's there, you spend a summer there, and you just go by Hawaiian, you're, you're technically cool. And because the epicenter of surfing in the world happens to be Hawaii. That's where either you win or you lose your world title in Hawaii. The last three contests of the world tour are always in Hawaii. So the world tour ends in Hawaii every winter. So that became the cool factor. And the fact that Asians, by general, whatever, were not cool, but you're Hawaiian. So aligning our brands you know, with all the Hawaiians, it made it really cool. And the fact that I happen to have long hair, most people just assume that I must be Hawaiian because what else would I be with the top? <laughs> so I never, I correct people. I always tell them because I'm from the big island of Brazil and they laugh. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been great for us. So I never, from the time we started, I used to get more grief from the Hispanics telling me, because by the way, do you realize you're not Mexican? I'm like, yes, I never said I was. <laughs> Look at my food. This is nothing like you normally eat. So it would be almost for my own staff from the early days, a learning curve. Because they're like, why are we frying this? Why are we doing this? Why are we refrying our beans? So this is how we eat it. And then they become accustomed to this. This is actually really good. So that's, you know, the other side. So it was a learning curve from both sides. But more important, the action sports industry immediately embraced us because the coolest Asian kids on the planet were from Hawaii. I happen to have long hair. So at the trade shows, it became this, all the brands from Hawaii was kind of like, hey, there's this guy that kind of looks Hawaiian. And half of the time, still people still ask me what island I'm from, you know? And I always do remind them I'm from Brazil. And they, they crack up. And now most of the best athletes on, on the skate tour and the surf tour happen to be from Brazil as well. So that whole thing kind of, we, we've kind of bridged all the gaps and we have a lot of fun. And in my other life, because when I found out by accident, again, <clears throat> when the water gets polluted in Newport Beach during the winter, that's because there's snow up in the mountains. So I got involved early on with snowboarding accidentally. And I've ran over 20 consecutive national championships for all the kids all over the country. So our brand lives and breathes action sports because they've accepted us. And we've been supporting them in return. So much perspective. It's just... I think when you're looking back at it 30 plus years ago, you know, we're, we're going to the wing lamb school of business truncated version 32, really like 32 years in, in 32 minutes. Right. And I think, um, I, I think it's, it's good that you're able to synthesize it with perspective. Um, talk to us about the growth of the brand and 
you know, working within the family. I, I think your business structure and your family structure is something that so many Asian Americans go through today, family business, multi-generational family business. You and I know very many people who are encouraged to go to school and then pulled out to say, now you run whatever. Yeah. And, and so yeah. those things don't, you know, match from a practicality perspective. But um, talk to us about that, working with your brothers. You guys are still the, the triumvirate that runs the business from day one. And share with us a little bit on your early years of when your parents accepted Wahoos and, and fish taco making as your chosen path of a place of support. Because as you mentioned, there was a little bit of hesitancy to want your kids to go through a business that was very different for them. Well, you know, it took a while. <clears throat> My parents always supported us, but they always questioned, why do we spend all this money to send you guys to college? You guys are washing dishes, right? So there was always that. But my brothers and I always said, you know, what makes us successful is the fact that everybody can pull their own weight. That is really the key. You know, and the, the thing they teach you in college is synergy. Don't be the one guy that shows up to a group work, you know, project unprepared. Because that's not synergy. That means the other three or four guys have to carry your weight. So that's always been the thing. It's like, don't be a slouch. Don't be anything other than if you can't do anything, find something else you can do, right? So we've always kind of, by either naturally or voluntarily, whatever, gravitated to the positions we were better at, also out of necessity. So because I was the one pulling the most money at the very beginning, it, it just seems to me natural that I would be out on the weekends doing the extra events and doing all that. And I accidentally kind of became the face of the company because I was out doing the events and promotions and anything that needed to be done, the interviews, I was always the one at the restaurant. I was always the one at the forefront where me was always kind of in the background doing the more of the paperwork and the, you know, the, the stuff that's critical, the cash flow. So in a rather Ed naturally gravitated to doing the, the new stores and the construction and all that. So we just kind of fell into it, but we also were really good at what we were doing. And it's really the school of hard knocks. We had to learn it as we went because I, which is funny today, teach marketing at a couple of different universities but I only took one marketing class in business school because as a finance guy, I really just needed to take one market. But by default, you learn to meet all the other marketing guys and you figured out, okay, it's all about branding. So luckily we had a, you know, I joking back to the John Wayne theory. I figure if we're going to be kind of a surfy kind of skate, you know, snowboard place, we need to have one surfer. Well, I didn't have one. I had probably in the last 30 years, if you want a world title, You've probably been to my restaurant multiple times, right? If you want a skateboarding title, you've been to my restaurant multiple times. So we ended up with every John Wayne of every industry. If you're the best snowboarder, you were in our restaurant. So it was one of those where I just learned to keep it going, right? Because I figured that's the marketing side, the PR side, and all that. But at the end, other side, we got to make sure we execute. So it was this constant like, hey, there's no point in bringing 100 new customers if you can't serve good food. So we got to make sure that, you know, the, the message is consistent. You got to produce, you got to get people in. So I often joke with a lot of businesses, you don't fail because you make a bad product or you don't know how to cook because most businesses start with a great product. The, the major issue is they don't know how to get people to buy it. Right. So how do you sell? Right. So my job is really important because I joke about in finance, if you take a hundred dollars today, and you recount it tomorrow, there'll still be only $100. You got to find a way to get $10 more in. So, so you can count it, and it'll be 110 
So my job has always been focusing on getting more people in so our business can grow. And the other half is make sure that every, all the systems are in place so we can replicate the ongoing business. So this is where it became more of a business than just fun and a bunch of three lucky Asian guys doing what they're doing, right? And then the key, the key moment in our lives is we were growing literally for the first 13 years of our lives at a clip about one restaurant a year. So one year we wouldn't open, next year we'd open two. So it's about one a year. So at 13 years, two year 2000, we actually had 13 stores. And luckily for us, uh, Merrill Lynch sent out a memo to all their clients and said, we're looking for small businesses to be featured in one of our ads, you know, and talking about, you know, how they, you know, how they become a business. And we had no idea that the tagline was the American dream and they wanted diversity. So when we submitted us, you know, about almost 700 companies all in submitted their little story, they got down to about three dozen. And on a phone interview with my brother, Ed, they're like, so what's the big deal? You guys own a bunch of Mexican restaurants, you know, fish taco stands. And my brother literally says, but where else in the world can three Asian guys sell Mexican food? This is the American dream. So it turned out that we've checked two boxes, the diversity box, because we're Asian, and two, we basically recited the American dream tagline back to them not knowing that that was a tagline. So we were chosen as one of six companies to do this commercial. And after it aired and they tested all the market responses out of the six companies, my understanding we were the most popular is it was so unique, you know, Asian kids, Mexican food, surfing. And we ended up with over half of the advertising campaign budget, somewhere north of $60 million over a year's time frame. So if you were watching the Super Bowl, the Final Four, the World Series, our commercial was airing for that whole year in the year 2000. And guess who got to appear in the commercials? My parents. So we were all in it together. We all got paid because back in the day, we had to get a SAG card because we're part of the screen actors. And we became the darling of the Asian community because we're on national TV. So all of our counterparts was, I guess you guys aren't crazy after all. And from that moment, you think about it, for the next 20 years, we were able to grow at a much faster pace because the cash flow was absolutely insane. You talked about personal brand. And one of the distinct memories I have of you standing on a stage in a room full of suits was you didn't care. You showed up in shorts and you said, this is me, take it or leave it, which is something a lot of people say, but many times we are encouraged or, or pressured to, you know, bite the bullet and, and yeah. put on a suit because whatever, good whatever. and bad reasons. Um, talk to me about your personal brand. And was it something that was, like you said, you, you sort of played along the, the big island of Brazil um, yeah. card earlier on, but you know, how much of that is just you? Well, it because it became what we call it, how do you go to work? Because most of the, uh, I call invitations, always say a business attire, or a formal or casual, right? But that's what all the invitations say. Well, to me, this is how I go to work. How you saw me, other than a collared shirt, because we were at a country club. I basically wear t-shirts and shorts every day to work. So, but the whole action sports industry, that's how we go to work. So it wasn't like I was the only one doing it. The entire action sports industry goes to work like that. So when I started getting asked to come to these so-called business meetings, I came the way I go to work 
And people started thinking, well, do you realize everybody's in a suit? Goes, yeah, but that's how you guys go to work. I don't. I go in T-shirts and shorts. So other than dining facilities or country clubs where I know they have a collared shirt policy, <laughs> I'll wear a collared shirt just for, because I do have them. I just rather not wear a tie, you know, <laughs> because I don't have to. So right. other than my basically wedding and a few other occasions and funerals, I haven't worn a tie in 32 years. I think it speaks volumes to your leadership by example, because even though you're doing it for yourself, I will say that it empowers other people to be them, right? And and then to live outside of the bounds of uh, this big book of shoulds that society, community, and our parents throw at us and say, you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And um, I, I think you've lived by example um, that it's perfectly acceptable and wildly successful um, to be you. And I think we need to hear that message even more today. Um, you know, social media has a way of making us feel very pressured to be a certain way. Um, you know, it, it's funny that you mentioned that's how you go to work. Um, you know, on the professional network LinkedIn, you know, people post about their work and some are comedians, some are chefs and some are, you know, nobody, not everybody has to put on a suit and work at a big fancy logo. And so there's always chatter about this doesn't belong on LinkedIn. And you go, yeah, it does because telling jokes is my job. Yeah. You know, making a podcast is my job. So yeah, I'm going to post about it. And if you don't like it, then maybe it's time for you to change your paradigm of what work is because work is not defined. It's an infinite definition and it's yeah. a fluid definition. Um, I, I think it's, it's an amazing um, testament to your parents raising you. And, and, you know, I think for all the challenges and like I said, I, I think you are telling us a very um, nostalgic version of, of the harrowing story of multi-continental yeah. and, you know, generational um, journey. Um, we're going through some crazy times. Um, you and I talked off camera about some of the, the pivots and challenges that you are facing as a business owner. Um, say something to our fellow Asian American restaurateurs, small business owners um, who are being impacted um, by three things. Um, just the natural, you know, uh, fear of people going out, number one. Two, yeah. um, municipalities, rightfully so, um, encouraging closure or, you know, shifting of businesses to discourage people from hanging out. And then three, and then the most unfortunate one is this growing anti-Asian sentiment that we're seeing, unfortunately, way too much of. Um, as a leader and as, um, I, I will use the word icon here, of, of somebody that many of us and many small business restaurateurs look up to, um, what, what are some things that you can tell them to, um, it, I don't know what it is that we can say, but um, say something to our friends within that business for us. First and foremost is, uh, you know, all the time that we put in to support the local community, it's time for them to support us regardless of the color and business we're in, right? Because it is tough. So I'm out there waving the flag in every direction I can, because today there are more Asian chefs doing different things than there ever has been. And these are award-winning chefs doing American food, you know, Asian food, whatever it is. So we're just out there creating this crazy network to say, hey, and you got to be able to pivot because take, for instance, Dean Kemp. He does custom baker goods, breads for all the high-end restaurants. Well, guess what? When they're not ordering bread, what do you do? You open the doors to the public. So he's been very active on the social media front, 
telling everybody, he goes, hey, I'm open from eight to whenever the product sells out. Mm -hmm. And he's selling directly to the consumer. And in a time when you can't find bread in the stores, you can find it at his place in Orange. It's his facility that he normally would only sell to the restaurants. But 90% of his customers are out of business already because the high-end guys can't do takeout like we can. So it's just one of those, you gotta figure out what works for you and uh, you know pivot, right? So some guys are doing more of a pantry setup where they're taking their high-end steaks, not cooking it, but allowing the customers to buy it in the raw form. So there's a guy in you know, Glass Bar in Dana Point turned into a fish market. So everybody's doing what they can because at the end of the day, we gotta survive this thing together, right? So you gotta pivot each way, you know, adapt, figure out, the most important thing is you've got to take care of the people that work for you as well. So internally, we've gone out, we bought, since we have unlimited access to basically the, the proteins and all the supplies, we went out and bought extra rice and beans, bought extra chicken. And over the weekend, we went to all of our stores and literally hand delivered all, each partner went to a different area of Southern California and say, here's 15 employees, here's 15 bags of rice, beans, tortillas, orange, toilet paper, and chicken. And our employees are like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Because well, because we know that we're asking to work a little bit less, right? So we haven't had to lay off anybody yet. We've just asked everybody to take a smaller, you know, concession in their pay. And everybody's agreed, and we're trying to make it up the difference. Because we know that they can't find tortillas at the supermarket. So this is where everybody's got to rally. So call your dessert guy. Call each other and say, how can I help you? Because our ice cream guy is getting killed because nobody's buying ice cream right now. So we're trying to find ways, because, well, can we team up? Can maybe I get a voucher from you that says, when they come in, buy a certain amount of food from me, I'll give them a voucher to get ice cream afterwards, and vice versa, come in and get ice cream, we'll get you some tacos. So any which way that we can truly create partnership synergies right now, and whether we're competing or not, I told my hamburger guy, maybe I'll give you for all your employees that don't want to eat hamburgers every day, come over and eat tacos and vice versa. I'll send my guys to you guys to eat hamburgers. So any which way right now we can drive business to each other. That's really the key. Keep our employees happy. Find ways to basically work with each other. We are friendly competitors, but right now, if we got to go to work, you got to go to work. So let's help each other and try to negotiate terms with all your vendors, landlords, because we just got our first letter from the Irvine company saying, hey, we're going to defer rent for the next 90 days. So try to get either reductions or deferment because the key right now, going back to what I said earlier, cash flow. So manage your cash flow smart. See where you can get some concessions, get some deferrals. So there's the business side, your customer side, and your client and your you know employees side. You gotta really take care of our employees. So we're out there right now waving the flag, telling everybody to go and support us. At the same time, let's support each other. And, and so th this podcast will, will live on well beyond the challenging times that we go through now. But if, if you are listening to this, you know, uh, middle, late March, um, go to Wahoo's. Most locations are still open. Most locations are still doing takeout. Most locations are doing some sort of delivery, I imagine, through yeah. partners or directly. Um, buy gift cards ahead of time. Um, be patient. Be kind. These people are putting their health um, as a price or at, at a risk. Um, to make sure that the world functions, um, you know, heroes in the kitchen, right? Heroes with aprons, um, yeah. not not only to make sure that we can survive this uh, from a physical health perspective, but from a, a community and, and a business perspective. 
um, you know, we, we hear unfortunately way too much about, you know, bailout for the big guys. And, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's the neighborhood taco shop, the, you know, the, the bakery, the coffee shop, the dry cleaners. Um, we don't typically get bailouts and I don't yeah. think it's coming. Um, so, you know, we need to rally together. Um, and, and so wing, I want to, um, first of all, thank you for coming on the show. And, um, you know, we always end our show with this one question, which goes back to the name of our show. Um, it is called the Asian Americans. Um, I was really inspired by a lack of communication to and from the community. Um, you know, people that look like us inspiring and, and nudging at each other to do more and to celebrate all that we're doing. So um, send a letter to our audience, send a letter to a, a younger version of Wing somewhere, a younger version of Jerry somewhere, and uh, help us close out the show. Um, I will start the letter and uh, you finish. Dear Asian Americans, Remember that no matter what happens, color of our skin is always going to be yellow. Learn to love it, okay? Embrace our differences and learn to basically be a part of the community, be proud of any heritage that you're from, because at the end of the day, this is the only skin color we're ever going to have. It may be a little darker or lighter, but this is it. So guess what? Be happy that you're here. Enjoy who you are. Embrace our differences. Embrace our equalities. And just have fun. Thank you. I cannot wait until all this is behind us. Yes. I, I will race down uh, with my kids to go see you uh, in person in Costa Mesa. Have some tacos. Have a bunch of beer. Um, and, and celebrate all that you've done. And uh, really celebrate all you've inspired, um, including this guy right here. So um, thank you so much for making time. Um, I, I know it's not um, the, the easiest times for you and your business partners this week. And, um, and in whatever way we can help to mobilize the community to go to Wahoos or to buy gift cards or, or do anything, um, please reach out if you ever do need the help. And uh, I really, really am grateful and look forward to seeing you um, very, very soon and better days, Wayne. Thank you. See you soon, buddy. Thank you. Take care.